chapters. You're like, oh, the one week I could have read something. I know, it was an easy book to read. Three chapters, very powerful. And, and when you looked at Joel, I'm, I'm sure it, it was intriguing on, on multiple levels. I'm looking forward to, to our time in this, this brief book this morning. It, it's interesting. I find that as we go about life, that there are life-altering events that occur that cause us pause. I am sure each of you can think of events, tragedies, devastations that have occurred that, that caused you to stop and think about some things. Pretty quickly, those events have the ability to change, if not impact, the way that we think about this life. It causes us to look at the temporal events and consider eternal things. The setting of this very brief three-chapter prophetic book of Joel does that. It, it looks at a tragic event in Judah. A massive plague of locusts has invaded the land. It has consumed all that is around them. And Joel is using this opportunity to deliver a message. The, the time of the writing of this book is really unknown. We're, we're not sure. Theologians speculate. And we, we, some think that it happened earlier. Some think that it happened later. We're not really given any indicators as to when. But most likely before the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem is mentioned. And, and Judah is mentioned, the people. So it's speculated this is quite some time before they go into Babylonian captivity. But Joel is going to use this to deliver God's message. I, I find that tragedies often, devastations are often amazing catalysts for us to think about spiritual things. And I'm aware that there are those here today that may be going through some of those life events. They can come frequently. And it seems in our day and age, they tend to come frequently. Joel is using this event of the locust and their consumption of everything around them to discuss the day of the Lord. He's going to look backwards at those events, at past events, and encourage the people to look forward. And as they look forward, they are going to see that there is a God who is intentionally going to intervene in human history and vindicate his people, Judah. 
It's quite an amazing book. And as we begin, Joel, I want us to consider two questions. Two questions. The first question is Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? That's worth considering, would you not agree? And the second one goes with it. If I discover who he is, will I obey him? These two questions, I believe, every group of people, every generation, every individual needs to consider. Because the answer to those questions will impact your day-to-day life. It will impact your eternity. As we, as we consider the narrative of, of what is going on in Joel, I want us to consider a different narrative that occurred earlier on. A, a narrative in the scripture that will challenge us in how we look at Joel. It was a narrative that was very familiar with the people of Judah. Joel was himself very familiar with this. It was found in the Pentateuch, the first five books, and we would be, we will find the exact narrative in Exodus. We're going to go all the way back to Exodus. I'd encourage you to turn there, chapter 5 in your Bibles. The people are well acquainted with this narrative of the people coming out of Egypt. And God is going to demonstrate to his people, to Pharaoh, and to the people of Egypt, who he is. And when we consider who he is, and whether or not we will obey him, there are two options we have. We will either A, do what he says, or B, reject what he is telling us to do. Chapter 5 of Exodus, let's read a couple verses there. First two verses says this, And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? And that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. It's interesting, we come up to a man who does not know the Lord. Well, God is going to graciously, and not so graciously, introduce himself to Pharaoh. He is going to show him who he is. I'd encourage you to turn over to chapter 6. We look at verse 1 there. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for... Sorry, having a hard time seeing this morning. Is that old age? Ah, There it is. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see, I won't see, but you shall see, what I will do to Pharaoh for under compulsion he will let them go and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land 
God is going to compel Pharaoh to do this. There's going to be some things, but I want you to go down just a few verses, or sorry, over some verses. What is the next one? You know when you preach through a book, it's really bad. You have a lot of highlights, and you have to remember which one you're reading from. So we're going to go to chapter 10. Chapter 10. God compels Pharaoh. He sends a multitude of plagues. He sends a multitude of events. And each time, God introduces them, so Pharaoh will know that I am. God is introducing himself, and we come to one of these plagues. And God is giving these signs not only to Pharaoh, not only to Egypt, but also to his people Israel. They are getting to watch their God that is going to bring them out do a work. In chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God is going to introduce himself so that they will know that he is the Lord. Verse 3. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? As I read these words, I want us to consider our own hearts. Because this morning's message of Joel is about our heart. But look what he says. How long? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. They will eat every tree with sprouts for you out of the, um, for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled and houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen. From that day they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do not... Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? God's been introducing himself. His people are seeing him. The Egyptians are seeing him, but this man has not. God sends the locusts. But look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt, 
for the locusts that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. Moses does this. Look. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord directed an east wind on all the all that day and all night when it was morning the east wind brought the locusts the locusts came over the land of Egypt and settled all the territory of Egypt they were very numerous there had never been so many locusts nor there ever again for they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees and the hail had left. Thus, nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field of all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called Moses and Aaron and says, I have sinned against the Lord God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. He went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord so that the Lord shifted the wind, a very strong west wind which took up the locusts and drove them out into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. You ask, I thought we were studying Joel. Why? Why would we read the narrative of Pharaoh? Because I believe we see a good message of what a true torn heart is and what it's not. As we, as we look at the narrative of Pharaoh, we see a man who gives lip service. He said the right words, did he not? He said, I've sinned. Please take this from me. He didn't like the consequences of his actions rejecting what God had said. So he says, I've sinned. Please go. The other thing I wanted us to see, it is God here who is orchestrating these events. God, being sovereign, is the one who can bring them and also cause them to go. And oftentimes we look at the event. And God says, I want you to look deeper. I want you to to look at the heart. Joel, in his message to Judah, talks about the, the, that he doesn't want Israel to be ripping their garments in grief, ripping their garments in, in repentance. He wants them to tear their hearts. It's an inward thing. Israel, as they would remember this narrative, as they would see the narrative of, of the things around them unfolding with all the locusts coming in, would once again be tempted to look to the external. Think about this. 
an Israelite coming before God thinking, I'm okay because of who I am. I am born a Jew. I am born a, a, from the tribe of Benjamin, of Judah. I live in Jerusalem. I'm one of God's chosen people. Therefore, I'm okay. And looking at all the external things, and God was looking and saying, no, it's about the internal, the heart. And how easy it would be for a people to look and say, well, you know, Pharaoh had the locust come, but he deserved it. He was a Gentile. He was a pagan king. Well, and God was just teaching him a lesson. Good thing we don't look at the external anymore. Good thing that we never would ever consider, you know, the fact that, well, I have gone to church since I was born. Even nine months before I was born, I was in church. You wouldn't dare think that because you went to, you know, Sunday morning, Wednesday night, you even show up for prayer meetings and all of this, I, you help in Awana, right? Surely those things impress God and worse yet we even think that maybe those things put us in a right relationship with God the external things mankind is so good at looking at those external things and God is saying no, 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 no We look at hell. We read about God's judgment in Scripture, right? We're going to look at the day of the Lord this morning. And we look at hell and judgment, God's wrath, and we're like, that's for pagans. Well, yeah. It's also for those who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. On the external, we can look so good. We can look really impressive to those around us. And so often we lean on those things, but it's a heart, it's a heart relationship that God is seeking and wanting and calling out for. That relationship. And so often we're tempted just to give it lip service. Joel's narrative is one of repentance. And if we don't find in our hearts a place of repentance, then inevitably we will find our place in God's wrath and judgment. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher. But when God's word speaks of judgment, when God's word speaks of his wrath, I have to be true to it. And the book of Joel is one of that. I want us to consider the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord. It sounds so good when you read it like that, doesn't it? Well, not this part, but, but that part. The day of the Lord. Oh, yes, a day where, you know, focus on the Lord. It's so... Anywhere in Scripture that you see that phrase, it is not a good day to be on the wrong side of God. The day of the Lord is speaking of God's wrath. Joel opens his book. Yes, we are now in Joel. You can turn to the book of Joel. All right? Joel opens his, his message to the people, challenging them with a stern reminder to remember. Look at the opening verses. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. In other words, pay attention. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. The, what is going on in Judah is something that God wants them to remember. God has sent the locusts. He has sent this devastation that is on their land and he wants the people to remember it. Remember God's power. You've never seen anything like this. Remember the devastation. There are times that God allows devastation to sink in to deliver his warning. And he wants his people to remember this warning. A warning to repent. There is a lesson to be taught here. This is why history is so important. Oh, I thought I'd get an amen on that from history teachers. Come on, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. History is important, and we need to teach our kids history. We need to teach our kids what God has done in the past, how he has handled sin, how he has handled those who obey. We need to teach that. Because God doesn't change. And he challenges them. In this idea of the day of the Lord, look at what it says in chapter 2. You just have to turn the page, or maybe it's the same page in your Bible. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at this. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? That word awesome, we have destroyed it in the English language. It means something that inspires awe. You look at it and it just... Wow. We look at the army of God here. Who can stand against it? Who can endure it? He's preparing. Look over at verse 30. It says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Once again, that word awesome, it is describing a day, a time, a period, a judgment that will inspire awe as people see this. Never have they seen God's wrath and judgment poured out like this. Everywhere you see in Scripture, the day of the Lord is referring to the wrath of God. This is a tragic thing for mankind because man has turned their hearts against God. And God deals out His wrath. Other prophets have talked about the day of the Lord. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, Malachi. They all speak to this coming day of the Lord. It's amazing. In the Old Testament, there's just as much end-time prophecy as there is in the New Testament. Folks are like, oh, I can't wait to get to Revelation. There's so much more here. And God is warning the people in the New Testament we see in 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians the discussion of the coming day of the Lord. It's very clear in 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter that this coming day of the Lord is a future event yet to come. And everything before it is just birth pains. It's going to get worse. Matthew, Jesus correlates the very events that are stated in the book of Joel. Jesus himself correlates it with his second coming. Not to be confused with the rapture, but his second coming. The seven-year tribulation is, is defined as God pouring out his wrath. The great day of the Lord. And as he pours out his righteous wrath, I want to specify this as righteous indignation. God, a holy, righteous God, is dealing with sin. And he pours out his wrath. After that, the second coming. We will see all the final elements of the day of the Lord come to be. As Christ brings in his kingdom. And Joel speaks to the peace and restoration that will happen in Judah. What a scary thing to read of, of the day of the Lord, the wrath of God, yet to be comforted at the very same time with the coming peace and restoration that God will bring with him. As Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David, Joel looks at the day of the Lord and warns his people that they need to have repentant hearts. The narrative is, I, I tried to break it down into chapters, I tried to break it down into verses, and really there's just three, three elements that we look at in the, in the book of Joel. It's, it's a narrative that is springboarding from the recent plague of locusts. And we really don't have a, a full idea in, in our area of what locusts can do. We've seen different things around the world and different elements of it. But this was brought on by God. And God is illustrating through the locusts, through the drought, 
who he is. His sovereignty, his power, his hand of control on the events around them. And so often God's people were so familiar with God doing this to others, right? But this is a call for the people to repent. And the message as it goes through not only speaks of the things that have happened, the day of the Lord that is in the past and the elements of that, it speaks of the imminent day of the Lord. There's, there's an a imminent day of the Lord. God is going to bring his wrath on Judah for their sins. There is something that is coming from the north. It's an army that is compared to locusts. Think about that. And God's saying they're going to crush you. They're going to devour you. And he gives verbiage through all of this of the imminent day of the Lord. And there's verbiage throughout this beautiful prophetic poetry. This is poetry really as, as it's displayed. As he writes this. But God is calling his people to be ashamed. To look inwardly and be ashamed of the sin. Be ashamed of the life you're living. Be ashamed of how you're displaying and representing me. He uses words like, wake up. Pay attention. He calls for them to weep and wail. When we look inwardly, when we see the sin that God is bringing to our attention, it should cause us to weep and wail, to grieve. And through it, he says, cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord your God. Why? For repentance. You read through Joel and you discover a God who wants them to have repentant hearts. You know why? Because God was eager. Eager to extend His grace. He was eager to extend His mercy to His people. He pleads with them, please repent so I can do this. He's not a, a God up in the clouds with thunderbolts in his hand saying, I dare you to repent. No, don't do it. I want to throw this. He's not an angry God. But he is a just God and he will deal with sin. He has to. If he did not, it would be absolute opposite of his character. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12. I love, oh, I love these verses. 12 through 15. He describes his army, who can endure it. But then he says this, Yet, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Can you hear the heartbeat of our God? Can you feel his, his anguish for his people? Knowing where they're at. Knowing that they deserve his wrath. And he calls for them. Return to me with all your heart. With fasting, weeping, and mourning. 
and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Let that sink in. God is describing himself to you, to me, to his people. In the midst of whatever sin, we're not told the sin that they're dealing with here. And I appreciate that. Because sin is sin. It's disgusting. And it opposes a holy, righteous God. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Wow. In their sin, God wants them to repent so he can bless them. Even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Let me bless you with new fields. Let me bless you with abundance and moisture that once again you can worship me. That's our God. I appreciated what Mark said, you know, as he introduced the song, Come, just as I am. God wants you. He wants our repentant hearts. He wants, it's a heart situation. And he says, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. He goes on and says, invite this person, this person, this person. Bring them all. God is inviting all to come to a place of repentance. And he wants an inward Tearing of the heart's repentance. And so often, we're, repentance is that 180 where we go like this in a different direction. But we're so good at saying, look, I'm turning. And we do a 360. Look at what I'm doing. Instead of truly repenting, we're going this way, we repent, and we go the other way. It is a turning, it is an about face. And so often in our turning, we just do a 360. And we wonder why in life we feel in our relationship with God, we're just going in circles. It's because we are. We're not truly turning from turning to him from our sin. I love verse 32, chapter 2. And it will come about after that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape as the Lord has said even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. God will save. 
But as you look at Joel, as we study it, as we look at it, we see the ultimate day of the Lord. That is the coming wrath to come. And this day of the Lord should stir our hearts. Where God will pour out His wrath once and for all on the Gentile nations. He will restore His people Israel to Himself. This should stir our hearts. I was talking with my son this morning about this. The coming day of the Lord, it, it, it grieves me. Because I look around at people I love and care about that I know have no relationship. There is no heart relationship there with Jesus Christ. And they will face His wrath. I don't want that for my worst enemy. I, I truly don't. Look how Joe, Joel, Joe, no, Joel, describes our God during this time. This ultimate day of the Lord, verse 14 of chapter 3. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Interesting name of the valley, isn't it? There's a choice. God always extends a choice. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heaven and the earth trembles. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Wow. When we read Joel, we discover who God is. Mankind will understand who God is. I opened with two questions. Who is the Lord and will I obey Him? Joel answers that. The Lord, He is God. The imagery is bold and it declares that God is holy. God is righteous. Sovereign. And He is powerful. We love and we hear so much. Oh, God is love. God is love. Yes, He is. And in His love, He deals with sin because He's holy. Will we obey Him? We must obey Him. To not is, is foolishness. If we don't, there's consequences. We read Joel and we see a God who doesn't, who is not impressed with lip service. He looks at the heart. 
I appreciate what the prophet Isaiah would say. Isaiah 45:22 said, "Let all the world look to me for salvation." We look so many places. Look to me for salvation for I am God. There is no other. I have sworn by my own name. I have spoken the truth. I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. Make no mistake about this God that you and I worship. And when we consider Him, when we look at who He is, when we look at the judgment that He will deal out, His wrath that He will pour out on sin, we look to Him and we call on Him for our salvation. In no greater time do we see the wrath of God pour out than at Calvary? Do you understand that God, as His Son hung on the cross, the perfect Lamb of God, God poured the sin the sin that Joel is talking about, that Isaiah talks about, that Jeremiah speaks of. He poured that sin. He put that sin, your sin, my sin, upon His Son, Jesus Christ. And He bore that sin for you and me. And God poured out His wrath. And He did that for you and me. And we hear the heart of our God say, please repent that I may show you my compassion, my love, my mercy. But if you don't, you will suffer my wrath. That's the message of Joel. God's not impressed with what people we are, with our background, what we do on a Sunday morning. He's looking to the heart. And he wants us to repent. Oh, and when we do, it is such a joy to obey Him. I know who the Lord is. He is both terrifying and wonderful. Loving. Righteous. Holy. And He wants a relationship with me. He wants a relationship with you. Will you repent? I don't do this often. But I'd like everybody to bow your head right now. 
God's not impressed with outward appearance. I'm not going to ask for you to come down. I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hand for fear that you would possibly think that because you did an action, something external, that you are okay. I'm going to ask that you, before God, look at your heart. Have you truly, before God, repented of the sin? Are you ready to receive the gift that He gives through His Son, Jesus Christ? If so, go before him this morning in your heart deal with him if you have if you know him as Lord if you've received the gift that he has extended through his son Jesus Christ Will you obey him? Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we come before you in prayer this morning. God, you know the hearts. We sang the song, Just As I Am. God, that's how we come to you. God, I pray that if there's any here this morning who who don't know you, who don't have that, that relationship with you, God, this morning would be that day. God, they would see you as a righteous, holy God who judges sin, yet one who wants to extend compassion, mercy, and grace. Lord, I pray this morning for those of us who have a relationship with you. God, that we would be sold out for you. God, we would obey you with joy, knowing, understanding just what you have done. God, thank you for a book like Joel where we see that you deal with sin. God, thank you for the Gospels where we see how you dealt with sin through your Son, Jesus Christ. That because of him, we can have that intimate relationship. So God, we, we thank you. We praise you because you are worthy of our praise. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.